This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is James Hibbard, the author of The Art of Cycling, Philosophy, Meaning, and a Life on Two Wheels. The Art of Cycling is a meditative love letter to the sport of cycling, revealing how cycling can shed new light on age-old questions of selfhood, meaning, and purpose. Interweaving cycling, philosophy, and personal narrative, the art of cycling provides readers with a deep understanding into the highs and lows of being an elite athlete, the limits of approaching any sporting pursuit from a strictly rational perspective, and how the philosophical and often counterintuitive lessons derived from sport can be applied to other areas of life. Accessible to everyone from the hardened racer to the casual fan, this updated American edition of the art of cycling engages the history of thought through the lens of cycling, to undermine what much of what is typically thought of as intellectual, breathing new life, vitality into life, encountering society's obsession with progress and drive towards the abstract, detached, and virtual. The Art of Cycling has been shortlisted for the Sunday Times Sportsbook Award in 2022. My guest, James Hibbard, is a former professional cyclist who studied philosophy at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and DePaul University. He has received grants and been selected for workshops by Penn America and Tin House. Also a screenwriter, James' first feature film is currently being developed. He lives with his wife and son in Northern California. James Hibbert, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Tom. Uh, so thanks again for taking the time to talk today. And I should say right here at the start that aside from some fiction, I spend most of my time reading books on philosophy, at least broadly conceived, and about the sport of cycling. So it's been a real pleasure as well as something of a time saver to read something that combines both of those interests. Uh, I know this question might be giving away a lot right at the beginning, but what brought you to combine two such esoteric subjects? Really, it's quite personal and quite biographical for me, sort of as I reveal in the book. Um, I grew up uh, with a father who also studied philosophy. And I just remember as uh, throughout my childhood, the bookshelves were lined with sort of canonical Western philosophical figures. 
Um, he had really uh, was sort of the the generation where he was studying uh, in California with a fair number of uh, scholars who had uh, immigrated after the Second World War, who were very influenced by uh, or students directly of um, Heidegger, Husserl, so it's that sort of generation of German phenomenologists. Um, in terms of cycling, I grew up very close to a, a velodrome in Northern California called Hellier Park, and there's relatively few velodromes throughout the, the continental United States, and I just happened to be less than 20 minutes from one. So uh, as I was starting to conceive the art of cycling, um, I was really influenced by books like John Cagg's Hiking with Nietzsche, um, certainly uh, Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, books that really took something that was tangible, uh, in my case, cycling, because it's what I knew, and, and sort of combine it with uh, intellectual abstract thought and the sort of counterplay between the, the visceral physicality of cycling and the detached sort of Cartesian mind uh, that you find so much in Western philosophy uh, made just, I thought, a really compelling sort of narrative structure for me to sort of have as, as a way of playing off of one another, those two themes. So the start, I had just as you thought of this, the uh, I hadn't thought of the piercing angle, and I don't know why that didn't occur to me. Um, but yeah, that's it's very clear that, that 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 there's some kind of inspiration there, isn't there? It, it, I think he really captures something exceptionally interesting about the personal and emotional ability of philosophy. I mean, when I was was both an undergraduate and a grad student in philosophy, I always was kind of looking around and a little bit almost confused. I expected to get something very clear-cut and emotional out of the discipline, and that was my motivation. And I realized that for a lot of people, it's a more sort of abstract intellectual pursuit, uh, especially amongst Anglo-American philosophers. And for me, it was sort of desperate groping to figure out uh, how to live and how to make sense of the world. And, and I think in many ways that was perhaps an inappropriate academic motivation, but perhaps a more appropriate literary one. And I think you find that in certainly in in Persing, and I think also in a lot of John Cagg's work, um, the the sort of emotional motivation underlying intellectual pursuits, and and at times uh, undermining them. And I think there's something very interesting and compelling about that. Yeah, I want to come back to your experience in graduate school later on in our talk. But the start of the book finds you having stepped away from professional cycling um, and your aspirations to become a professional philosopher. So before we talk about um, before we talk about graduate school, what mm -hmm. motivated did you to leave professional cycling? I think I was rather unlucky in the period that I encountered and, and came to the sport. Um, it was really the height of what you can now call the sort of doping Armstrong era. Um, and I came to the sport, I think, excessively idealistic with a sort of chariots of fire sense of what sports would do for me and what sports were. Um, and 
really what what I saw was uh, certainly at the at the U.S. professional level and at the European level um, a lot of a lot of doping um, and to be frank too, my body had started to fall apart. I was training in excess of 30, 35 hours a week at times when I was 18, 19 years old um, as part of the U.S. national team, which looking back now and based on sort of current physiological knowledge was certainly far, far too much. Um, and, and sort of the, the doping culture combined with my own constitution um, sort of brought the, the curtain down on my cycling career in, in 2005. Uh, when I was still in my early 20s, so quite young by endurance sports standards, but I felt that I had sort of exhausted what little physical talent, physical potential I had, uh, and very much wanted to move on to other things and not have my entire life be defined by being a sports person. But there's still a loss there, right? I mean, there's there's something that um, something missing once once you decide to to give that up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very, I think, very difficult to move on from. Um, I had sort of thought that it would be a relatively easy thing to move on from, to be to be frank. Um, but the sort of social connections that you develop, the identity that you develop when you're uh, a top athlete, especially sort of during your formative teenage years, um, it's it's all... I think to the point of of cliche, right? These sort of stories of athletes that never are quite able to move on after their athletic careers because everything in, in regular life sort of pales in comparison to the highs and accolades you get from being a sports person. And I, I certainly can, can vouch for the truth of that. Um, there's this sort of feeling of just strange invincibility where you go, you're able to be... Uh, strong and capable and go to a local velodrome, win every single race. And the sort of uh, high you get from that, I think, is is very addictive and very hard to replicate in, let's call it, regular life, for lack of a better term. Um, so, yeah, I think it is. It was incredibly difficult to, to walk away from the sport. Um, and certainly I've seen uh, both with myself and with with other retired uh, professional cyclists, a lot of, of mental health struggles after their their period of, of racing, just because sort of nothing else compares and, and what is my identity? There's a lot of, of questions that, that are raised uh, when one retires from sport. So the book itself is framed by your plan to take a multi-day bike trip with some old friends. Uh, the trip is, is a transition of sorts that is after you retired from cycling, it seems that you hadn't spent much time on the bike. What did it mean to you to reintegrate, if not the sport, then the activity that was so central to your sense of self back into your life? I think that, that you really hit the nail on that, even in the question. I mean, in terms of it being the difference between the sport and the activity itself. Uh, the activity of, of cycling itself was something that I sort of think that I threw out with the proverbial bathwater of being a bicycle racer uh, and the sort of some of the toxic elements that, that I found and alluded to in that. But the counterpoint to that was I think that there's something quite beautiful 
and really necessary in modern industrialized society about doing something like riding a bike. Not necessarily riding a bike, but at least something like it. Something that's tangible, something that's physical, something that's in the elements, um, something that is, in every sense of the word, not abstract. You are physically exposed to the sun, the rain, the road, the feel of your brake lever, uh, the feel of the saddle. So I think all of those things are, are counterpoint to a sort of mode of detached thinking and very different than what it means to be a professional athlete in terms of pressures, um, in terms of desire to achieve, um, riding a bike and being a professional cyclist. Uh, sound like it sounds almost tautological, but they're quite different things. And, and really what I experienced when I started to ride again was the, the true disjunct and the fact that uh, I very much liked training when I was an athlete in as much as training was uh, getting on the bike and spending four or five or six hours alone on mountain roads. That was great. Uh, a lot of the other sort of ancillary uh, elements of being a professional athlete I found more difficult to, to grapple with. You know, it, it's so interesting because, you know, one of the reasons I, I chose this book from um, from the pitch in the New Books Network is because, you know, I am a, a recreational cyclist. Right. I, I didn't come to it until I was in my 40s. Okay. You know, the possibility of being a professional was just like, you know, it was, right. you know, it was never on. That the ship had sailed, right. 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 Yeah, exactly. And And even if I had been in my 20s, I probably don't have the talent for it. But. But it's so interesting in reading people's accounts of professional cycling and and yours as well, mm-hmm. how different the experience is from from those of us who almost immediately just sort of feel like a, a buddy that I ride of who I ride with often refers to it just honestly as psychotherapy. Right. Right. No, and and I think there's there's certainly there's something to that, both psychologically and physiologically, where I think that that you're just the very act of of riding a bike, turning over your legs, uh, sort of being forced to engage and pay attention to not crash. All of these things, I think, especially for people who tend to be overly analytical to tend to just sort of in, in short crude terms think too much i think the bike is is an incredible tool to to draw you out of that i do think that for a lot of people who are racers though there is this sort of obsessive gamblers mentality to it where you think uh well if i just do this type of interval set if i lower my drag coefficient by just a little bit more uh, there's there's a, a very strange I think psychology to it and and I keep coming back to things like addiction and gambling, um, but I do think that there's there's certainly some parallels that that can be drawn, um, and I think it's it's valid and not it's not as hyperbolic as it may seem upon sort of first blush. Well, and there's also that element in addition to the the addictive quality and and the gambling that you described. In in chapter four of the book, um, uh, the title on winning, you talk about this um, 
Well, I mean, this is sort of where you talk about the the whole doping era in large part where it begins. But there's also this sort of um, like, okay, I'm trying to think of the right way to frame this question because it's complicated. But but the sense of the 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 techne of the body, uh, right? That, that the you know the technological prowess in um in, in designing training regimens like you just described, right? Let you, let you overcome the physicality of the self. Um, all of those things start to come into play here too, which obviously has some very deep connections, as you said, the sort of Cartesian split between the mind and the body. Uh, right that go get into play here yeah i thought about that so much when i was when i was racing particularly on the track um oh, sure. sort of just just backing up a little bit it was clear from even the time i was a junior i was not even going to be a national class level road rider i mean all of my results came primarily on the velodrome and one of the events that i was best at and liked the most was the one kilometer time trial so this is about as simple as cycling gets. You're on a fixed gear bicycle. Uh, you ride three laps of a 333 meter track, four laps of a 250 track. Uh, absolutely as hard as you can from a standing start. So the reason that I liked that event and gravitated towards it so much uh, was the fact that it essentially just seemed like nothing more than uh, a contest of suffering. It seemed to me as if my only limiter was uh, some mental process that said, stop doing this, it's too painful. So there was this this very odd thing that happened where I kept, it's easy to think you're nothing but a mind and that you could, at least for me, and that you could just completely override pain signals and keep pedaling harder and harder and harder. And obviously that's not the case. You have, you're limited by muscle recruitment and VO2 max and all sorts of well-defined physiological parameters. Um, But this sort of essential uh, masochistic contest of suffering paradigm was one that I was very interested in and attracted to in a psychologically telling way from a very early age. And it really does get to, yes, this whole matter of Cartesian dualism and thinking that you're just a mind that can overpower your body and certain belief sets that I frankly no longer subscribe to. Uh, But there I was a probably very strange teenage kid thinking that I could just go as hard as my mind would allow me. Yeah. And it's, and it's also interesting to me because again, you know, in addition to writing, I also run a bit. And one of the things I find This is, you know, this is a particularly Roman Catholic way of looking at it. But my my line is that um, biking is the sin and and running is the penance. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, And and one of the things I enjoy so much about cycling in contrast to running is is that sort of symbiotic feeling of of the body and the machine. Right. Right. The the two sort of linked together. and, And the bicycle is so unique in that sense in kind of bringing the those two elements together and you feel sort of as like one piece of the thing uh i don't know where i'm going with this question no no you absolutely do and and i think the the person who is the philosophical thinker that's most interesting on this front is no doubt to me is is heidegger um and obviously heidegger's for with good reason his reputation has 
descended into the pits with the release of of his black notebooks and and his you know obvious uh, anti-semitism and national socialist associations but he still has some very interesting things to say about tools and technicality and the relationship of a human being to given tools in the world and i think certainly that relationship holds with the bicycle. I mean, if if uh, an alien was to come down and look at a bicycle, you could deduce human morphology based on on the position of the saddle and the yeah. cranks, handlebars, and everything else. Without human morphology, the whole the contraption of a bicycle would be utterly inexplicable. And there's lots of objects that that's not the case, right? There's there's right. that's not everything doesn't have that same sort of ergonomic morphological uh bent to it in the same way a bicycle does right we, we can so have i think that, you can have commercials with uh a subaru commercials with dogs driving cars but right right that's the same it's, thing with a bike right that's a brilliant that's a brilliant well well known well seen example so yeah i think that that the ability of a cyclist to feel 100% at home and comfortable on the bike and to know his or her saddle height to the millimeter and to, to their reach and stem length and everything else, there's something incredibly interesting and beautiful about that process and feeling really like you are at one with a machine. And that's described by uh, race car drivers and, and any number of people, even you know a, a violinist sort of feeling as if their tool was part of them. But I think that, that the bicycle certainly is is up there in terms of uh, tools that, that really do integrate with uh, the operator, with the rider, with the human being. So the book kind of tracks the miles that you put in, both uh, spent training to get yourself in shape for this journey that you took with your friends. And, and it provides an opportunity for you to reflect on various schools of philosophy as you go. Um, I, I forgot to ask in advance, but I, do you have a copy of the book handy? I actually don't. I ought oh, yeah. to, but I've got I've got a pretty good memory, so try me. Okay, all right. So there's just a passage on on, on page four. Uh, okay. That where where you describe a little, and again, this is sort of assuming that a, a lot of the listeners on the New Books Network are are more likely to be philosophers than cyclists. Right. And, um, it's probably one of the only places where I can say that and have it be true. Right. So um, I, I was going to ask you to read a passage from from the book uh, uh, about your experience uh, of cycling. Um, but I guess if you don't have it, I, my apologies. Yeah. Do you do you happen to have have one handy? I do. Okay. Yeah. Do you do you are you comfortable giving it a read and then we can dive in? Sure. That's fine. Um, all right. So cycling forced me to reframe the problem itself. In many ways, the demands and challenges of being a cyclist were the antitheses of those I found in philosophy. With the solitude afforded by the bike, the questions remained, but I was changed. My once all-consuming desire to understand and bring words to all things evaporated. Rationality itself seemed to grow silent as I pedaled. Cycling provided an escape hatch from my own head, and the bicycle grew to be sacrosanct. Visceral and immediate riding drew me back to the physical world, the play of the sunlight as it filtered through the leaves of a tree, onto the surface of the dark asphalt, or how the cork tape on my bicycle's handlebars felt underneath my hands. Pedal, breath, pedal, breath, pedal, breath, over and over again in an unremitting pattern of repetition, 
which even among the cerebral and strong-willed forces your higher-order faculties to capitulate. I, I think that's a, just a, a beautiful way of, of talking a little bit about this experience and, and, and that, that, again, the, you know, again, as I said before, part of the beauty of cycling is, is that symbiotic relationship between the human and the machine, but it's also the way that it places you in the scene of, of right. where you are. I think it places you in the scene. And I think for, for me, I also wanted to tell a very particular story about Western philosophy and Western metaphysics. So I don't, I certainly had some particular literary inspiration as we talked about. Uh, but I also had a particular sense of where I felt that Western philosophy, Western metaphysics failed and and sort of does and has done a disservice to the visceral and embodied present. And this isn't any sort of a novel idea. This is certainly a, a idea that you find amongst uh, amongst Nietzsche, amongst a number of existentialists. So the sort of story I tell of philosophy is one of uh, reduction of scope and ambition and the sort of failures of, let's call it platonic thinking that, that were clearly identified by, by Nietzsche and throughout the 20th century were, were really highlighted by other figures. And bringing myself back to the immediate and realizing that there were a great number of things about being alive that I could not rationally or explain or articulate or argue my way out of um, was really one of the motivating factors philosophically for the book and for introducing cycling as this sort of tool to illustrate that fact. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. One of the things about this book, and, and I'm not sure that this comes through, maybe it's the title. Uh, mm -hmm. This is also a deeply personal memoir. Um, as I was reading it, I found myself returning frequently to uh, Martha Nussbaum's work, The Therapy of De Desire, as right. well as the conversation I had last summer with a philosopher named Simon Truant. The, this is a place where cycling philosophy seemed to go, come together most intensely, and this is in the sense of providing a mechanism for healing, um, a kind of therapeutics of embodied thought. Um, am I reading too much into this, or is there something about these two activities that, that did provide a kind of healing for you? I think so. I mean, I think that 
the only reason that, that you you likely sense some reluctance in my voice is I do worry about philosophical texts or relying on philosophy as a sort of therapeutic tool. Um, I think that I, I'm paraphrasing, but there's a Zizek quote, something like the point of philosophy is to for us to all realize what deep shit we're in, not not to not as a sort of way out. And I sort of subscribe to that notion. So philosophy as perhaps as personal journey, I think can be helpful. But I'm skeptical of philosophical thinking as clear cut path towards self help. I think what's very interesting is to think through going back to to even Plato or pre Socratics to sort of think through and look at philosophical thought stretching back 2500 years western philosophical thought as casting it in an emotional light i think is very interesting i'm sure all the listeners and you are certainly familiar you sort of philosophy 101 um trope of professor comes out knocks on a table says you know plato thinks this table is less real than the concept of the table and i think what's interesting is Yes, that that has allowed for scientific progress and abstraction and all of that. But I think there's a very interesting implicit emotional move in uh, philosophical abstraction, in Platonism broadly construed, where, yes, you get rid of, uh, you, you sort of develop this concept, but this concept is also protected and sacrosanct. And you see this in uh, Neoplatonism and Christianity, where you have something solid that is not subject to rot and decay and death and impermanence. And I think the philosophical, Western philosophical inclination to glob onto the abstract out of a deep emotional need for something solid and permanent is very interesting and very profound. And I think that, that coming to grips with that desire and seeing that it is allowed for scientific progress, but also for uh, a strange comes at the cost of a sort of strange detachment and devaluing of the world, as identified by by Nietzsche so brilliantly, so clearly. I think is is a very uh, emotionally laden path to understand that process and and to come to grips with death and impermanence. Yeah, there's that a piece that I wrote talks about this idea that um, you know philosophy as in that Heideggerian sense is sort of a, a constant reassertion of the of the facticity of death, right? Right. And right. and and I think you know that's all very well and good as as sort of a, a task, but you know again, I, I'm not I am not a philosopher in the sense that you describe it here as as someone who's um you know digging towards some um in the sort of distinction between eso and exotericism right right and, right and my my sense of philosophy is sort of a philosophy of and i'm in communication so it's a philosophy of communication right but, right but it but it's that sort of inward outward looking version of philosophy and and what i've argued is that we need to look outward, especially outward towards one another, 
in order to, you know, obviously you can't resolve the the, the problem of death. It's it's there. Right. But, you know, at the other hand, you know, you don't want to become like Woody Allen and, and sort of uh, Annie Hall and obsess about it, right? Right, right. No, absolutely. And I think that, I, I think for me personally, that's always been death coming from a sort of Bay Area humanist agnostic household. I think that reconciling death and decay without any reliance on uh, any sort of metaphysical unseen bedrock has been uh, an emotionally difficult process. I don't know if that's just merely because of the fact that I was an innately a sensitive person or not particularly distractible or whatever the case might be. But I think for for me, that's been very difficult and sort of drew me to philosophy, but then also drew me to seeing uh, that philosophy couldn't fully provide that and seeing where it starts to to break down. Um, and, and sort of my fascination ended up being with figures like like Nietzsche, like Heidegger, who are sort of always diagnosing the end of philosophy, the end of, of this sort of Western metaphysical tradition, and getting that in conversation with something else that's not metaphysical, that's not abstract, but is nonetheless in, in its uh, inscribed facticity, let's say, to, to use Heidegger nomenclature, as unfortunate as may be, is nonetheless redemptive. And, and I think that that's what I really wanted to explore in, in the book was, okay, what is a sort of redemptive practice that, that doesn't refer outside of empirical reality? So this is a question that, that uh, I, I just want to ask you to reflect on, and it's a little outside the scope of the book, but it, it's, yeah. it's so hard that I, that I, I just wanted to bring it up. Um, your experience in graduate school, yeah. Uh, your description of it parallels my own experience of of being in graduate school. Yeah, there's this kind of hyper competitiveness that you describe as painfully isolating, um, and it strikes me that as someone who is nurtured in the hothouse of professional cycling, <laughs> that, <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Yeah, that it was graduate school that that turned you off, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so, again, this is sort of outside the scope of the book, yeah. but do you think that there's something just wrong with the way that we're doing graduate education um, and that this has some kind of implications for how we're training the next generation of academics? I do, and I very much worry about it. Um, I, I encountered people in graduate school who are, first of all, far more intelligent than myself. And I've now got enough distance. I've kept in touch with some. And I think on just practical levels, the demand for sacrifice of 10, 15 years to then sort of be at the on-ramp of an adjunct job somewhere in the United States, if you're lucky, is just a waste of intellectual capital. So I think there's the, the obvious things that everyone has discussed, the sort of fact that uh, the the baby boom generation who had tenure track jobs didn't retire the new crop of people who were who were hired were hired at, as adjuncts or lecturers 
um, the general problems with with fundings for the funding for the humanities, um, and getting back to the sort of more immediate PhD experience I had, there were amazing instructors uh, at DePaul who were in the top of their field and very very much caring, engaged professors and mentors. However, I think that, that yeah, just the the entire conceit of we're going to let in four or six people every year to a PhD program who are sort of been told their whole lives that they're exceptionally intelligent at this given field. And then the sort of pressure cooker economically and everything else of that. Um, I, I just, I don't think it's maximizing the, this sounds horribly capitalistic, but I don't think it's maximizing the, on a societal level, the intellectual potential of that cohort of people. Uh, and I think the whole thing just ends up being kind of unfortunate. And you have this trickle-down competitiveness that's that's everyone's trying to sort of angle and already think by their first, second, third year in a PhD program, hey, what's going to be my area of specialization that's going to make me stand out, be employable, everything else? Who do I need to strategically... Uh, align myself with in my department to, to be recognized, get a good letter of recommendation. Um, and I think in my particular case, I'd sort of had enough of hyper-competitive endeavors for a lifetime already, and then to be thrown into that uh, melu that was hyper-competitive and seemingly hopeless at the other end um, was more than I could cope with at the time. So I guess there's sort of two pieces that are the, just as a follow up. Um, the one is is very clear, and, and you you articulated it beautifully about you know the 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 current job market and and what's out there for people who undergo the the rigors of this kind of training. Right. But, but it also seems to me that even you know take that away and and right. know, let's imagine we go back to the you know the the glory days of the post-World War II university, right. where everything's growing and there's a GI Bill and et cetera, et cetera. Even though even, you know, I did another podcast where it turns out that's not even true, but let, interesting. Let okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, but, but assume that, you know, we're, we're back in, in that age. Right. I don't know that in the contemporary university, there's a space for a book like yours. And, and what I mean by that, yeah. is that you range broadly over a wide terrain of different philosophical schools. Right. Um, bring them into a dialogue with one another through the mechanism of this bicycle. Right. And and reflect on that in a highly personal way about how it helped you to grapple with some of the anxieties that you are experiencing in your life. Right. To me, that's a very valuable thing to do, right? I mean, as a, again, you know, I, I don't do these things if I don't like the book. So. Right, right. Thank you, Tom. Yes. But, but, but I'm not sure that there's space in our contemporary um, university for a book like that, like you could, oh, yeah, you yeah. could not submit this as a dissertation, right? Oh, absolutely not. Right? No, no, no. no. It, this it, is like, this is too this is too literary. This is not. Yeah, a, a dissertation would, of course, need to be in a in a philosophy department. Need to be, hey, um, I've 
discovered a lecture by philosopher X that actually philosopher Y attended and this influenced his understanding of of a particular topic. No, this is far the this book is uh, far too personal, far too literary, um, and and certainly the the product of someone who was philosophically educated, but not anything that would be produced by in an academic setting per se, by any means. Yeah, it, it's that know. distinction that Isaiah Berlin makes, and I, I I can't remember who he bases it off, but of that distinction between the the fox and the hedgehog, right? Right, right, absolutely. Right, the yes. hedgehog and and contemporary practice is turning out hedgehogs, right? And we're all sort right. of very good at sort of delving into and knowing, as you said, you know, that, that somebody attended a lecture on somebody at some point, and right. now I'm going to write a book about, you know, that experience or something like that. And and you spend your entire career sort of owning... In the, in the trenches, owning a particular figure's biography and intellectual development and dead ends and, and and influences and everything else and and to be frank that's something else that i just i could not imagine myself doing as i progressed in my graduate studies i sort of projected myself 30 years into the future and sort of thought boy if i'm still talking about nietzsche heidegger husserl in in when i'm 65 years old i'm gonna have <laughs> in some ways failed to have developed as as a human being no matter how great the depth of my interest in these particular figures might be. And certainly once, once one is established, once one has a little bit more intellectual leeway and everything else, and I realize that I'm not trying to be glib, but by some extent that still is sort of the, the, the game that one has to play. And I think that uh, there's all sorts of, as you probably know, there's all sorts of reasons for this going back to, Humanities departments attempting to model themselves on uh, on hard sciences, going back to 18th century German universities, and there's all sorts of, of reasons that we're in this situation uh, with the humanities and sort of hyper-specialization, but here we are, and that's the reality that we're contending with. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to I don't want to speak too harshly of it. It sounds like I'm being incredibly critical, but because there is a lot of good work that is produced under that, you know, right. under that framework, but there's also something that gets lost and, and it gets, and it's, it's books like yours that I think remind us of, of what's lost. No, I think, I think it does. And I think that the only, the only concern when it becomes so hyper-specialized like that, the only concern is you do, you have to, on some level, be attracting people to the field and the humanities have to continue to describe to articulate a, a vision that enriches human life without uh, deferring to just sort of being making better workers or communicators or some uh, clear capitalist driven project to say, oh, actually, we add value too. Because I think when when philosophy or English or any number of subjects do that, they just fail and people still go to business departments. So I think that that it's a fine line to walk, and I think that books that are slightly more broad-ranging and show the internal value set that can be derived from philosophical thinking, from literary thinking, uh, do nothing but help the humanities and justify the humanities on humanities terms rather than 
business practical ones where it will the humanities will always lose out. So um, as we come to a close today, let me ask, uh, what are you working on next? I'm working on another book about the intellectual history of Silicon Valley and oh. the role of philosophy in Silicon Valley. So it's been it's been to be totally candid, slow going now that I know uh, sort of been down the road, the sort of sophomore album uh, concern slump is a real thing in my experience, but that's what I've been slowly chipping away at. Well, it sounds exciting, and we'll look forward to uh, getting a copy once you get that. I understand about this logo, though. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, once again, my guest today has been James Hibbard, the author of The Art of Cycling, Philosophy, Meaning, and a Life on Two Wheels from Quirkus Editions Limited. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network. <laughs>